welcome to episode 25 of the Underground Christian Podcast. Thank you for supporting us and helping to spread the word about this podcast. Fair use warning, this podcast is produced as an educational resource and social commentary for its listening audience and does not reflect the views of any person other than the podcast producer. This podcast may contain copyrighted material. Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, Limited use is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Phew! Now that the legalisms are out of the way, we can get straight to work spreading the truth of God in this electronic swamp of lies and deceit. It's not easy being an ambassador for truth, especially when all the news is so bad. The watchmen on the towers of the ancient walled Jewish cities probably weren't too excited to blow the horn of warning either when they saw the marauding millions of demonic destroyers approaching the gates of the city. Nobody likes to hear bad news, especially when it concerns their future well-being. It's much more comforting to live in a delusion of continuity where we believe that the future will be the same as the past, but even more so. But in a society where evil is emerging from the shadows, the future will almost certainly not resemble the past very much. When evil makes an appearance and gives us a choice, we suddenly are faced with a decision, and it's often an unpleasant decision. But in that moment, the person who remembers the very first words of the very first psalm will be comforted. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So when the day of decision arrives, and it may arrive sooner than we would like to believe, consider also James 1.12 and take it to heart. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And also 1 Peter 4 verses 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because the trial's coming, one way or the other, but so is Christ. So don't compound the problem by abandoning Christ when the going gets tough. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? There's nothing of more value to us than our soul, because that's what God values. So guard it well, along with your heart and mind. As I said last week, this podcast confronts difficult spiritual issues head-on, and today we have some difficult spiritual issues to confront head-on. But before we do, let's review the groundwork for this series. I mean, after all, there may be some listeners who are new to this podcast and haven't had the time to go back and listen to the whole series. But even for those who have, it doesn't hurt to refresh our memories once in a while. As in the words of Abraham Lincoln, we are engaged in a great civil war. It's a civil war between spirits, and the booty being fought over are human souls. According to Jesus, the Son of God, Satan is the ruler of this world, and as its ruler, he commands the world's considerable forces. The world in this context is the social, economic, political, and military system that has been constructed to support Satan's goals and advance his tactics. The whole world lies in the hands of the evil one, said the Apostle John, and the people of this world work for Satan, some wittingly and some unwittingly. Most of his people don't think about it very much, if they think about it at all, because they are very busy running their day-to-day -day lives doing important things like building their future or making a difference in the world. Into this busy world of activity and self-promotion landed Jesus, and he set about to do his father's business. His father is in the construction business, so naturally Jesus is in that business too. He was not in the business of building houses and other structures, despite coming from a tradesman background, but he was in the business of building a kingdom because he was a once-and-future king. Kingdoms need people. So Christ immediately started recruiting kingdom subjects to populate his future kingdom. Jesus said, on this rock, uh, the rock being himself, he would build his church, which is the Greek word ekklesia. That is the word for called out ones, the assembly of true believers who will comprise the future kingdom of Jesus, the Christ. And Jesus added in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are devices that are used either to keep prisoners in or keep others out. 
In the case of Satan's kingdom from hell, the gates serve both purposes. They are designed to keep the people of the world confined within Satan's prison, a prison of the mind and body and soul, to be Satan's slaves, and they are designed to keep God and his people out. But onto this prison planet landed Jesus, who established his church, just as he said he would. The church is an invader that has occupied enemy territory, and the enemy does not like that very much. So the enemy has responded through time by unleashing the weapons it has at its disposal, mostly lies, deceptions, and fraud. But today, it has far more potent weapons that it can bring into this conflict to shake and hopefully, by Satan's standards, destroy the church. Because what territory Christ has taken, Satan intends to reduce to rubble and ashes and take back. The church, of course, is comprised of people who have chosen to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and in doing so, they have rejected Satan and his kingdom. These people are called Christians. Some Christians say they don't choose Christ, that they were chosen by him, but we don't need to engage in that debate right now. Whether they chose Christ or were chosen by him, or both, they are on Jesus' team. The job of these Christians, to put it simply, is to entice members of the enemy's forces to defect over to Jesus' side. Since Satan has confined his slaves to a prison that leads eventually to death, an eternal unending death, defection will actually benefit those who defect by providing them with a free gift of life, eternal life. So this is an existential battle for eternal life or eternal death. Eternal death means a permanent separation from God and everything good that he provides. Eternal life means a permanent citizenship in Christ's kingdom that includes all the good things that God can provide. It's all or nothing, full or empty, bliss or agony, contentment or regret. So from the human perspective, that is the big picture. There are two ultimate authorities on this earth. They are Satan and God. The people of Satan's kingdom believe that mankind is the ultimate authority, or nature is the authority, or science, or religious leaders, or economics, or political rulers, or professors, or activists. But none of these are ultimate authorities. They only have a limited amount of delegated authority because the real authority lies with God and with Satan. It lies with God because he is the creator of the universe and everything in it, and therefore he is the sovereign ruler over all of it. And it lies with Satan because God gave him authority over the entire earth. So people and their institutions only have authority to the extent that God or Satan give it to them. Jesus is God's son, and in a complicated spiritual transaction, God gave him the right to rule in his place, and that includes on the earth at the right time. In John 15:5, Jesus told his disciples, Without me, you can do nothing meaning they can do nothing useful for Christ's kingdom unless Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to influence their activities and provide them and us with real spiritual authority over Satan. As the newly delegated spiritual ruler of the earth, Jesus has the authority to do that. To have any real impact on the kingdom of Christ, we have to allow the Holy Spirit access to our bodies, our mind, our heart, and our soul. In contrast, in John 14.30, Jesus told his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. The phrase, he has nothing in me, means that Satan has no authority over him and no ability to access Jesus' body, mind, heart, or soul. Therefore, Satan has no way to influence Jesus. All spirits have the authority to enter into human bodies to influence the mind, heart, and soul of anyone who gives them a spiritual foothold, which is a form of permission. Being legalists, the satanic spirits will establish a foothold and enter a body aggressively based on any number of technicalities that allow them access. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit and God's ministering spirits will only enter our bodies to help us if we allow them to. The first is hostile and aggressive, the latter is peaceful and gentle. Jesus, being God, had independent and superior authority to Satan, so Satan had no ability to influence Jesus unless Jesus allowed it, which he didn't. Satan tried to assert his authority over Jesus in the desert at the start of Jesus' ministry, but he failed. The takeaway is that we can let God and his team influence our minds, heart, and soul to benefit Christ's kingdom, or we can let Satan and his team influence our minds, heart, and soul to benefit Satan's kingdom. It's one or the other. 
We're not truly independent or free because this is a prison planet and we are prisoners either of righteousness leading to life with God or sin leading to death with Satan. It's Jesus or Satan, good or evil. So what is Satan trying to accomplish? First of all, he wants to be like the Most High God, as we were told in Isaiah 14, 14. He wants the status God has. He wants to rule the spiritual forces in high places, according to Isaiah 14, 13. High places means the spiritual place from which the spirits rule and control the events in the prison. He wants to establish his own false Christ on earth, Christ meaning Savior, in the person of the Antichrist. He wants a fraudulent son to mock the Son of God. And most importantly, Satan wants to beat God at this game of war he is playing by making God out to be a liar. That would give him both prestige and deliverance from the fate God has laid at his feet. If he makes God out to be a liar, then God will have no moral right to judge or punish Satan for all the wrongs that he has committed because God would have sinned just like every other creature. So God's moral authority would be terminally undermined. And finally, Satan doesn't want Christ to take away his kingdom. So how does he accomplish all this? Well, his options are decreasing with every passing generation. At one time, he may have had other options potentially available to him, but at this point, there are really only two options left. God has promised the Jews through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would deliver them a nation that would never end and a ruler who would never die. God made them multiple unconditional promises that are not dependent upon anything the Jews do or do not do. The viewpoint of replacement theologians is that God has transferred these promises to Christians because they rejected they, the Jews, rejected Christ and had him crucified. These theologians' opinions notwithstanding, Satan knows the promises of God and he knows that God intends to keep them. Since God has not delivered the promised kingdom to the Jews yet, Satan could theoretically prevent God from fulfilling those promises. If he were to do that, he would make God out to be a liar. Satan has a valid point here because the replacement theology position is untenable. God did not condition his promises on Jewish obedience. If God were to transfer his promises he made to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the church, he would be a liar because the church is in no way Israel and Christians are mostly not Jews. Satan would have won already. That was never the plan, and God was not caught off guard by the failure of the Sanhedrin in Israel to recognize their Messiah and act in accordance with their instructions from Scripture. The plan all along was for the Jews to reject Christ, because that would give God the opportunity to graft the Gentiles, who are the non-Jewish population, into the promised kingdom of Christ. Ironically, the Christians get to the kingdom first. But Christians can't be grafted into something that's been destroyed. God never said we're a new vine. He said the Gentiles are grafted into the existing vine. Something that isn't naturally present to the vine gets grafted into it. So how much more will that be the case for the thing that was part of the vine in the first place? It just needs to get reattached. That's the whole point of the Great Tribulation at the end of the age. It is to bring the Jews to repentance so that all Israel, the surviving part of it anyway, can be saved in Christ. They will finally see Jesus for who he is and who he always has been, and they will mourn over what they did to him in both body and spirit. The Jews of that day will feel much more responsibility and guilt than the average replacement theology Christian does today, even though Christians are just as responsible spiritually for the rejection and death of Christ as any Jew. So if Satan can stop all of this, then God will be made out to be a liar. So how can he stop it? Very simple. All he needs to do is kill all the Jews. There's a reason why anti-Semitism has been so strongly believed and practiced by the world ever since the Jewish nation was established. The world responds to the impulses of its commander. Hitler, for example, was one of Satan's greatest slaves. He went a long way toward pulling off the goal of Jewish extinction, which is the same dream that many Arabs have today. Stalin helped out in this project, too, but God is always there to rescue a remnant. Another man will come along and try again, but that has to wait for another day. It's not necessarily a distant day, but it is another day. 
So what's the other way that Satan can make God out to be a liar? If it's too hard to identify, locate, and terminate the life of all the individual Jewish people, then Satan's next best option would just be to destroy all of humanity. Just get rid of everybody. That would certainly do it. Oh, and there's a third way. One that's even more diabolical than the first two. It would be to change humanity into something that is not quite human and thereby destroy God's most special creation, even while retaining some remnant form of it. So welcome to the 21st century, man! No, things are not how we thought they were, and nothing much is going to go as planned for us from this point on. But take heart. The Lord is with us, and if the Lord is with us, who can be against us? Answer? No one who will have any lasting significance. Still, the enemies of Christ are going to impose significantly unpleasant consequences for the sin of believing God and following Christ, from their perspective, sin which is why we need to take courage to understand what's going on and devise some countermeasures. That is a neat military term for doing specific things that will impede, disrupt, or prevent the best-laid plans of Satan's men. But what are those plans specifically, and how do they relate to the plans of men? The elites of the world intend to control the political, economic, social, and military world through actions of their globalist council. Satan, though, has another plan. He intends to control the human, political, economic, and religious and military world through the actions of his appointed human son, the Antichrist. Through the Antichrist, Satan will try to kill all the Jews and enslave the rest of humanity, and if that doesn't work, he intends to kill or permanently corrupt the rest of humanity. He will actually try to do all three things at the same time. The elitists, who are led by Jews who say they are Jews but are not, intend to kill off most of humanity and permanently alter and enslave the rest, modifying themselves in the process so they can live forever. The two plans kind of go together. Both sides are more or less pursuing the same thing. Control, control, control. It's all about control. Last week, we heard Klaus Schwab say that technological change is coming like a tsunami and governments need to adapt to that change. And then you heard his right-hand man, Yuval Noah Harari, tell us about the importance of controlling the data to implement that change, specifically biometric data. And then we heard how they are developing the ability to hack human beings for the purpose of moving us from terminal organic life forms to eternal inorganic life forms. This all sounds like really heady stuff. It's not the kind of thing that the average person thinks about much on a day-to-day -day basis. But that's how serial killers and political psychopaths work. They think about the things we do not, and they bring their created misery to our front door. One of the great values of studying the Bible is that it provides us with a framework by which we can understand the machinations of individual and group psychopathy, at least as it relates to biblical truth. Some people call this framework a worldview, but it's more than a worldview. A worldview is simply a way of looking at the world. It is a method for interpreting information that may be true or may be untrue. The method, not the information, although both may be true or untrue. A framework, on the other hand, is a structure that supports a larger construction, whether it's a physical construction, a social construction, or a spiritual construction. It is an integral part of the constructed whole, the part that provides both stability and form to the construction. The reason the Bible is a framework is because it both describes and gives examples of the form of the reality that we live within. It isn't interpreting reality. 
It is describing the substance of reality. Many people don't see the Bible that way. They just view it as a human literary creation. Those people will never be able to see reality for what it is, but instead will have to interpret reality through a worldview. A worldview is a necessary element for interpreting reality when the structure of reality is unknown and undiscoverable. It is a best-guess interpretation of how data fit together and relate to other data, data just being information about reality. To the extent that their worldview is wrong, they will misinterpret what they are seeing. The power of a framework is that it produces a check on personal interpretations because the framework is true and does not change. It is a standard against which a worldview can be compared. Unfortunately, many Christians are sloppy when it comes to this framework. They actually take a worldview and then try to force the Bible to fit into it rather than place elements of reality into the framework that God already gave us. Always remember that a framework is not a complete structure. It is a necessary support system on which the rest is constructed and to which the rest must conform. The Bible is a framework, a structural system. It is not a complete description of anything, but all of reality must conform to it. That makes it a powerful tool to sort out truth from fiction, and there's a lot of fiction being peddled as truth these days, particularly when it comes to big data and the tools that are used to manipulate it. Nuval said that the people who control the biometric data will control the destiny of humanity, but to do that, they will need a lot of computing power. He didn't explain the connection between the data, computing power, biometrics, and destiny, but he did make it clear that he believes they're all connected. So to pull the connections together, let's start with the data. Data just means measurable or recorded information. The term data is plural. The singular form is datum, so data refer to more than one recordable bit of information. Big data refers to the size of the data set, and everything Nuval talked about had to do with big data. So let's go back to 2016 and a PBS documentary titled Big Data Revolution to get a little idea of what this idea of big data is all about. Now, I apologize for the loud background music. Apparently, the audio engineers over at PBS don't understand that background music is supposed to be in the background, not fighting for your attention. Just try to overlook that for a couple of minutes and listen to what they have to say. In the near future, every object on Earth will be generating data, including our homes, our cars, even our bodies. Almost everything we do today leaves a trail of digital exhaust, a perpetual stream of text, location data, and other information that will live on well after each of us is long gone. We are now being exposed to as much information in a single day as our 15th century ancestors were exposed to in their entire lifetime. But we need to be very careful because in this vast ocean of data, there's a frighteningly complete picture of us. Where we live, where we go, what we buy, what we say. It's all being recorded and stored forever. This is the story of an extraordinary revolution that's sweeping almost invisibly through our lives and about how our planet is beginning to develop a nervous system with each of us acting as human sensors. This is the human face of big data. All these devices and machines and everything we're building these days, whether it's phones or computers or cars or refrigerators, are throwing off data. Information is being extracted out of toll booths, out of parking spaces, out of internet searches, out of Facebook, out of your phone. Tablets, photographs, videos. Every single thing that you do leaves a digital trace. The exhaust or evidence of, of humans interacting with technology and what side effect that has, and that's literally, it's just this massive amount of data. What we're doing is we're measuring things more than we ever have. It's that active measurement that produces data. 
if you were some omniscient god and you could look at the footprints of electric devices, you could kind of see the world. The whole world is being recorded in real time. You could see everything that's going on in the world through the footprints. I think it's a lot like written language, right? It's just, at some point, they got to the point where you had to start writing down. You just got to the point where it wouldn't work unless we wrote it down. We're sort of in the same point where, well, it ain't going to work unless we write all the data down and then look at it. And all that data coming in is big data. We estimate that by 2020, uh, the data volumes will be at about 40 zettabytes. Just to put it in perspective, if you were to add up every single grain of sand on the planet and multiply that by 75, that would be 40 zettabytes of information. All of the data processing we did in the last two years is more than all the data processing we did in the last 3,000 years. And so the more information we get, the larger the problems will be that we solve. Every powerful tool has a dark side. Every last one. Anything that's going to change the world, by definition, has to be able to change it for the worse, as much as for the better. It doesn't work one way without the other. When it comes to big data, a lot of people are very nervous. Data can be used in any number of ways that you're either aware of or you're not. The less aware of the use of that data that you are, the less power you have in the coming society we're going to live. We're sort of just in the beginning of this big data thing. You know how it's going to change everything. You just know it is. So big data is the constant generation and storage of a vast amount of information from billions and billions of electronic devices worldwide. Anytime you hear the term smart attached to something, it does not just mean convenience. Yes, that gizmo might provide some level of convenience to you, but that's not really the point in making things smart. The point is for that thing to generate data and for that data to be uploaded to the people who own it through the Internet of Things. It is a massive network of smart devices that we do not control. Almost everything that's being produced is incorporating some form of monitoring and reporting technology. Here is a very short list of items that come up on an Amazon search that are related to smart. Of course, we all know about the smartwatch and the smart TV, but there is also a smart TV remote and a smart soundbar for your listening pleasure. There is a smart light bulb, a smart electrical plug, and a smart light switch so that you can control the ambience of the smart entertainment system. You can clean your home with a smart vacuum or a smart robot vacuum on your floor, or you can watch it with a smart security camera. If you get hungry doing so many smart things, you might wander into the smart kitchen to cook up some french fries in your smart air fryer, toast your bread with a smart toaster, fry an egg with a smart frying pan, and eat that meal with a smart fork. What's the use of a smart fork, you ask? Why, it keeps track of how fast you shovel that food into your mouth so that you can monitor your eating habits. You can wash that food down with some hot tea made in a smart kettle, or, for the really health-minded, you can drink out of a smart water bottle. Then you can brush your teeth with your smart toothbrush before you leave to go to your afternoon walk with your smart fitness tracker. But don't worry if you forget to adjust the temperature in your house because your smart thermostat will have that under control. The smart lock will keep the house secure behind you so no one sneaks in to nap on your smart bed or utilize your smart toilet. And you will look really fashionable on that smart walk wearing your new smart sunglasses. Just don't try to drive that smart car too far because with the Joe Biden gas prices the way they are, it just isn't smart. Every one of these devices, not to mention your smartphone, really smart computer, Echo with Alexa, smart washer and dryer, smart dishwasher, smart, 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 things all around you, all of them generate data continuously and upload it to the people who own the data. And how do these things do that? Well, in all kinds of creative ways. Alexa doesn't just answer questions. She also communicates everything she hears both acoustically and electronically, to her central database. So does your phone, or phones, whether they're on or they're off. So does your computer. But if none of those things are around, the smart devices embedded in the things of the world around you transmit information continuously to your smart electric meter, which retransmits the information to the central computers. Or your devices in your house transmit information to the receiver that's sitting on the phone pole outside. 
or on the light pole, or to any device that just happens to wander by. This is why it's called the Internet of Things, and all of this transmission creates the big data. The volume of information being generated just in your home every second is stunning. And in our businesses, schools, public buildings, places of accommodation, highway systems, traffic systems, and security monitoring systems, all this volume of data is almost unimaginable. It is certainly too voluminous for normal computer systems to sort and process effectively. It's even too massive for the industrial-sized data storage buildings being constructed around the country and around the world to handle even this monstrous mass of data with giant computer systems that go with it. But for all that, this is not enough data to accomplish what the masters of tomorrow have in mind. Yes, they can make a nice living selling all this information to companies who want to sell you things, but that does not accomplish the goals of the elite. To accomplish their goals, they need yet more data, and more important data. They need and have every intention of obtaining biometric data. And what is biometric data? It is information about your body, which is collected from inside your body. It is the continuous, intrusive surveillance of your body systems, including your vital functions, metabolism, nervous system activity, and physical activity, not to mention the location of your body in space and time. It is the continuous monitoring and feedback of every human being on Earth to a machine that can make use of that data. Oh goody, I hear some people saying. The government will monitor my health so it can help me even before I need help. Yay. Well, I guess that could happen in La La Fantasyland, but that isn't the intention of these people who are rolling out this kind of surveillance. The point of all this surveillance, and any surveillance really, is to take total control over you and me. It is knowing not just where we are and what we're doing at any given moment. It's about knowing what we are thinking and what we might be planning to do. They want to create a predictive environment in which they can foretell a problem and take action to prevent it before it even happens. Perhaps you will decide you don't like being a slave and you'll want to do something about it. Well, the police would be there to take care of you almost before that thought had time to form in your consciousness. You will be taken somewhere for correction or disposal before anything ever even happened. Can't you envision the potential here for the masters of the universe? Equally importantly, they want to control every person remotely in order to keep that person fulfilling whatever role the masters of the universe want that person to fulfill. Imagine what your neighbor or your ex, or some petty bureaucrat could do with that kind of power. Imagine what they would do if they could monitor and control your body at will, or blackmail you for your thoughts or actions, or terminate your life remotely if that seemed good to the person. But before our elites can surveil to their heart's desires, there is a problem they have to overcome. They have to be able to process all that information on a time scale that allows a complete and total surveillance system to be effective. That requires a computing system that is completely different from what we have today, because we've just about reached the limit of what our current computing methodology can handle. We need, or they need, a brand new kind of computer. And that's what we're going to look at today. It is an entirely new type of computer. Most of you probably have never heard of D-Wave or Gordy Rose, the founder of the company. D-Wave is a privately held company that makes quantum computers. Quantum computing is not just a techie sounding name. It is a form of computer that exploits something that has never been exploited before. Let's explore just the tip of this brave new world by going all the way back to 2013 to see what was happening back then with quantum computing. I'm going to tell you a little bit about quantum computers and why people care so much about them. There are literally tens of thousands of some of the brightest people in the world today trying to build these machines and understand them. And I'm going to tell you why. In my last 15 years of working on this type of stuff, I found that scientists divide up into two categories of zealots about this field. The first half are people who are absolutely entranced by the physics of these things. 
This quote is from a respectable scientist, in fact, one of the founders of this field, that may be a little bit, may look a little strange to you who don't follow theoretical physics, but there is a very clear prediction that our most successful theory of nature makes, and that is that there are an enormous number, mind-bogglingly large number, of parallel realities, as real as this one, that have different consistent histories. So imagine a world where all of the laws of physics as we know them are obeyed, but different decisions were made along the way. Different decisions at the level of tiny microscopic particles, different decisions all the way up to what you chose to eat for lunch, and whether you chose to come to the session or not. Quantum mechanics makes a very specific prediction that all of those are as real as the thing that you remember. And this is bizarre, because we don't see those other things. But science has reached the point now where we can build machines that exploit those other worlds. And quantum computers are perhaps the most exciting of all of these that we have within, or almost within our grasp right now. This is not a Hollywood science fiction concept. Pay attention to what Gordy said almost a decade ago. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of really, really smart scientists who believe that parallel realities exist, and they are actively trying to tap into them. Christians have known for a long time there is a parallel reality to the material reality of the world because we have the framework that describes it. It's called spiritual reality. Scientists, who have no concept of spiritual reality, instead view what they discover in the context of their evolving worldview. They determine that an alternative reality exists, but they frame it in the context of a parallel universe or universes, and then they create a machine that can exploit some characteristic of that reality that overlaps with material reality. That concept alone is mind-boggling to them, but it makes sense from a Christian perspective. There has to be some kind of overlap for spirit to be able to affect the things in the material realm. But let's continue. So people from a physics background love this. They want to understand the world. They want to understand the, the universe, how it all works. There's another type of person who tends to come from the computer science side that's like, yeah, okay, that's all great. But there's a different thing going on here, which is just as exciting, if not more, and that these machines that supposedly can do this wild stuff, let's forget about how they work, if you could build one, could solve problems that you could never, ever solve with any computer of the sort that we built. If you took every single atom of silicon in the world and made the most sophisticated conventional Intel-style processor that you could build, there are problems we know of that I could write down on a sheet of paper that you could never, ever, ever solve with that thing, that you could with this kind of machine. So that's very exciting. Humans use tools to do things. If you give humans a new kind of tool that can do things that you couldn't otherwise do, imagine the possibilities. Oh yeah, if you give sinful, arrogant, psychopathic human beings new tools that can solve problems that are impossible for anyone else to solve, you can just imagine what they'll do with that. Very exciting. So you may think, well, this is all fine and dandy, but is, aren't these things in the realm of theory and speculation kind of in the same regime as um, other futuristic things you may have heard of which may be allowed by the laws of physics but aren't here yet? That's not true. There are, in fact, many of these machines deployed now in openly available research centers following the model that was used to introduce supercomputers to the world. They're too big and ornery and difficult to operate to put in your home, too expensive also, but you can give them to a place which will manage them as a shared resource that will offer that service to the world. And there are two of these now. One of them is at the University of Southern California. And this analogy with flight, I think, is an interesting one. So a horse, can beat, or could, beat the uh, initial flight of the, the Wright brothers' flight in speed. But a plane is not a faster horse. A plane is a different kind of machine. The plane takes advantage 
of another, thing, another resource that nature gives us, this third dimension, in order to do something that matters to people better that you could do with any horse. It doesn't matter how fast you make a horse, it will never fly, at least the kinds of horses that we know about. So these types of computers now are being thought of in the same way. They're not terrifically powerful yet, but they're doing something completely different than what your computer does. And that thing is like flight. It gives these computers access to these new resources, maybe you could call them parallel universes, in order to do something that you couldn't otherwise do. And that's not the only one. In fact, the one I'm gonna com come back to and talk to in the context of the story that I'm wrapping this in was recently installed at NASA. And Google uh, was the primary uh, interested party that pulled this whole thing together. And this one is really exciting to me. Because what they're going to do is apply this machine to an area that I think is fundamentally important. It's the crux of our future as humans. And that's, can we build machines like us? So here we have NASA, the U.S. government's research branch of the military, partnering with Google, the largest and most powerful internet computing company in the world, to create something that will place normal computers in the same category as a donkey cart compared to a spaceship, and potentially enable someone to build machines like us, meaning human beings. What could possibly go wrong? I guess they never saw the movie The Terminator. So, building machines like us might be possible. I certainly believe it is. I might be wrong. But what I do know is that the types of approaches that people are taking now to build intelligent machines benefit immensely from what this machine that we've built does best. So what this center is about is applying this beautiful new computational idea in the service of trying to make intelligent machines. Now, I can't think of anything personally any cooler than trying to use quantum computers to build intelligent machines, so this is very exciting to me. Steve Jurvetson has been a longtime uh, friend and investor in the company, and for those of you who don't know him, he's a uh, Silicon Valley investor who's probably the smartest VC that I know of, and certainly the one that's the most attuned to technological trends. He's, uh, he's on the board of SpaceX, Tesla, Synthetic Genomics, which is Craig Venter's company is trying to build uh, artificial life, and D-Wave, and that's it. And this is his particularly poetic way of framing the difference between the machines we build and conventional computers. This is what they look like. There are two of them. These are from our lab in Burnaby in British Columbia. From the outside, they look like giant black monoliths, big metal boxes, about 10 feet on a side, 12 feet tall. And they are powered, they have a fridge inside them, a refrigerator that cools these chips to almost absolute zero just a wisp, a fraction of a degree above absolute zero. Hundreds of times colder than interstellar space. Amongst the coldest and most isolated and extreme conditions that humans have ever been able to engineer. These fridges, interestingly enough, which are called pulse tube dilution refrigerators, have a thing called a pulse tube, which emits a sound roughly once per second, which sounds eerily like a heartbeat. So if you're you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it is an awe-inspiring thing, at least for me. It feels like an altar to an alien god. It, they really are impressive machines. It seems like an altar to an alien god because it is an altar to an alien god. They just aren't mentioning that in public yet. At the heart of this big box is a tiny chip about the size of your thumbnail. And on this chip resides all of the wonder and magic that makes this thing go. I'm not going to describe in any mathematical detail how it all works, but let me give you an analogy. In quantum mechanics, there's this concept that an, an, a, a thing can exist in two states which are mutually exclusive, 
at the same time, quote unquote. So I'm using those words because the English language was developed before we had concepts to describe what these things actually are doing. But I'm gonna give you a, a, a roundabout way of understanding this. Imagine that there really are parallel universes out there, and now imagine you have two that are exactly identical in every respect, all the way out to the horizon as far as we can see, down to the last little atomic detail of every single thing with only one difference. And that's the value of a little thing called a qubit on this chip, which is a contraction of quantum bit. And that qubit is very much like a bit or a transistor in a conventional computer. It has two distinct physical states, which we call zero and one for bit. In a conventional computer, these are mutually exclusive. That device is either one or the other, never anything else. In a quantum computer, that device can be in this strange situation where these two parallel universes have a nexus, a point in space where they overlap. And when you increase the number of these devices, you, every time you add one of these qubits, you double the number of these parallel universes that you have access to until such time when you get to a chip like this, which is about 500 of these bits, you have something like two to the 500th power of these guys living in that chip. So the way I think about it is that the shadows of these parallel worlds overlap with ours. And if we're smart enough, we can dive into them and grab their resources and pull them back into ours to make an effect in our world. Now, this may sound very odd to you and bizarre, and in fact, I am using language that a normal theoretical physicist probably wouldn't use, but this is, what I'm telling you is absolutely correct and in line with the way that these things actually work. We've been doing this for some time now, and in fact, we have our own version of Moore's Law. The doubling uh, of the number of these qubits on the chip has happened once a year for the past nine years. So for the last nine years, every year, the number of these qubit devices has doubled and it will continue to do so. As a point of reference in terms of how fast these things are, in one generation of chip, the one from the, the system that was installed at USC to the one that Google and NASA have now, the speed of the device went up by almost a half a million. This is the kind of progress that you're going to see with these types of machines going forward. And half a million sounds like an abstract number, but I put up a, a little mental comparison here to see what 5,000 really means. 5, 500,000 is a big number when it comes to speed. So that was in 2013. Way back then, we had scientists playing around with extracting something from outside our normal physical universe to do something inside our physical universe. Now let's move ahead to June of 2017, four years later, when Gordy spoke at Tech Vancouver. By this point, he had moved on to a company called Kindred, another computer company. Let's hear how things were going over there at Kindred. Okay, so my previous company was D-Wave. I'll just uh, show you a couple things. We built what are still the world's only quantum computers that you can buy. And the company D-Wave has been doing this, thanks. I didn't really have much to do with it, but you know, because so this is one of them. Um, this is one of the processors, and uh, a lot of interesting things happened to me over the years. There, I got sent pajamas, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, there's lots of interesting things that happen when you build something like a quantum computer. But just as an aside, because I thought it was funny, one of the interesting things that's happened from the D-Wave story is there's this gigantic uh, conspiracy that's arisen on the internet that goes like this. So D-Wave builds quantum computers. The way that they work, if you know this, how this works, is one of the interpretations is that you tap into these parallel universes and they do computations. Sounds really weird. But uh, what, what, what's happened is this idea has been hijacked to describe something called the Mandela effect, which is this thing where um, the past changes. So think about something you know to be true from the past. And then imagine you went out on the internet and you can't find it at all. It's not there. It doesn't match with your experience. So these people think that D-Wave is responsible and CERN. And of course, the quantum key to the abyss factors into it somehow. I'm not exactly sure how. Okay, so that, that's just D-Wave. Uh, I did that for about 15 years. It was a lot of fun. A big science project that we turned into a commercial entity. 
that was a warm-up for Kindred. So Kindred is much, much, much more ambitious than D-Wave. And what Kindred is trying to do is build real AI. So what you've heard about AI is not what we mean by AI. What we mean by AI is a software system that can do literally anything that a human can do. Literally anything. And obviously, computers are better at things than people in lots of different ways. So now imagine, not only can they do everything that a human can do, but they can do everything that the best human at any task could do better than them. So imagine there was the mental Olympics of the 100 meter dash and Usain Bolt is the fastest person. Now imagine that's some kind of a mental thing like writing a novel or writing whatever. Imagine now that the thing is so much faster than Usain Bolt, like for example, it's a spaceship, yeah? It's, it's still doing the same thing, but it's doing it so much better because we're limited because we're people. So um, what Kindred is trying to do is solve this problem. How do you build machines that are better than people at everything? Now there's a mental block that we have here when we think about this. Because when you think about that, one of your questions might be, for example, what are the applications of this? So imagine this. Imagine for $10, let's say, I could build a, a machine, like a little robot that had fingers and eyes and all that. And it could do your job better than you, no matter what it is. And I could sell that to your employer for, say, $15 and make a profit instead of having to pay you $100,000 a year. Now imagine that was true for every single job. So that's what we're talking about here, is a complete and utter transformative change that of the likes of which has never been seen before in the history of humanity, making the industrial revolution look like a little tiny blip on the path that humans have taken from when we emerged from the ooze a few billion years ago. All of these people love to bring up the four-billion-year-old ooze. So Gordy is a man who makes it his business to imagine a lot of things. And in this case, he imagines that his machines will put every single person on the planet out of business and out of work. And that's what these people call transformative. Gosh, you say, what's so bad about that? All these machines doing everything we do but better and we humans can just lounge around eating Cheetos and watch the Jets lose again. Well, my friends, that's called a delusion. Uh, not the Jets losing, but the sitting and lounging around. That is not the future that Gordy is imagining, because if the machines are better than us at everything, everything, they will be much better at imagining a future than we will be, and that cannot be good. So, let's continue. We are right on the verge of that transition now. So uh, this guy, Rich Sutton, is one of the most famous people in the academic world of AI. And like many, when asked, when will this happen? He says things like this, 25% chance within 13 years of this thing that I'm talking about. You know, when you think about what, is on the, what you read on the news, you know, CNN, BuzzFeed, whatever, they're all kind of the same nowadays. Think about how unimportant that thing is that you're reading if this is true. Yeah? So what does this have to do with aliens? So uh, Sam Harris, who I quite admire, is a very interesting guy, um, was reciting this parable at a TED Talk that he was giving, and it goes something like this. So I am, uh, say I'm the President of the United States. So I received this message from the heavens. So my microwave dish, my SETI dish, finally captures something. And what it says is, in 50 years, or 13 years, we're coming to your planet. You gotta be ready. Now just imagine what would happen if, it, if that happened. A super intelligent alien race Beam down a message to all of us Earthlings saying, we're coming July 13th, 2030, and boy, you better be ready because the mothership is landing right on the front lawn of the White House or wherever you wanted to land on that day. The amount of resources that would be marshaled to try to figure out what to do, would, it would encompass the whole world. AI is just like that. So when this thing that I'm talking about happens, it's going to be exactly the thing that you're thinking about, about those super intelligent AIs. 
So the one thing I can tell you is they're not going to be like us. In Revelation, the world encounters numerous aliens who wreak havoc on the world. These aliens are called demons, and they come from the bottomless pit. Kind of like the bottomless series of parallel universes Gordy was talking about back in 2013. Now he is telling us that something is coming. Something really, really big is going to come through this artificial intelligence and computer network system they're building, and whatever this something is, is not going to be like us. And I can assure you, whatever they manage to bring out of their dark little hellhole AI computer system is not going to be anything like us, because that is exactly what Jesus already told us. Maybe that's one reason why D-Wave is a giant black box that sounds like an ethereal heartbeat. So alien means, you know, different. These things that we're building are not going to be people. They might be really smart. They might be really good at all sorts of different things, but they're not going to be like us. They're going to be aliens. And they're going to be, I'm sorry to say, way smarter than every single person in this room in ways that we can't even comprehend. So this, of course, triggers a lot of alarm. One of the guys who talks about this is Elon, who uh, says things like this, like, when you do this, beware. Because you think, just like the guy in the stories, that when you do this, you're going to put that, that, that little guy in a pentagram, and you're going to have your holy water out, and you're going to wave it at the thing, and by God, it's going to do exactly what you say and not one thing more, but it never works out that way. So uh, this, is an, this is an attitude that some are having, this emerging alarmism about the way this is going to go. But this, these words, demons, doesn't capture the essence of what's happening here. Oh, yes, it does. I'm with Elon on this. He said, quote, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. You all know those stories where there's the guy with the pentagram and the holy water, and he's like, uh, yeah, he's sure he can control the demon. Well, it doesn't work out. End quote. Uh, I don't know if any of you are uh, turn-of-the-century weird fiction fans, but there's this guy named H.P. Lovecraft, who's a very famous American weird fiction author. And he exposed a, a view which is called cosmicism. And the essence of cosmicism is cosmic indifference. So he, what he was saying is basically, yes, there are these massively intelligent entities out there, but they're not good, they're not evil. They just don't give a shit about you even in the slightest. The same way that you don't care about an ant is the same way they're not going to care about you. And these things that we're summoning into the world now are not demons, they're not evil, but they're more like the Lovecraftian great old ones. There are entities that are not necessarily going to be aligned with what we want. Notice how these people slip up once in a while and let little things come out. They aren't as smooth with the information as they think they are. These things, he says, that we are summoning, that's a correct description of what they're doing. These machines are the tools they are using to summon something. His characterization of the things that are being summoned as being indifferent is incorrect, however. Mr. Rose is a smart guy, and I think he's deliberately whitewashing something about these things that he already knows, or at least suspects. If you want to know what a demon in a human body would look like in real life, it would look a lot like Mr. Rose. So this transition is really, really massively important for our entire species to navigate and going back to that thing that Sam Harris was saying, nobody is paying attention. This thing is happening in the background while people bicker about politics and what, what's going to be in the healthcare plan in the U.S. And underneath it all is this rising tsunami that, if we're not careful, is going to wipe us all out. Recall last week that we heard Mr. Schwab talk about a technological tsunami that was about to hit the world in such a way that it will require governments to adapt. When the really smart people who are trailblazing the technological tsunami all start using the same terminology, you can bet there's some backroom coordination going on. 
The Bible says that in the end times, all the governments of the world will get behind the demonically empowered Antichrist to form a unified one-world government. Doesn't it seem like it's all coming together nicely? So, um, on that uh, pleasant note, uh, we're hiring people <laughs> to try to make something like this happen. Uh, Chuckle, giggle. It's so very funny, isn't it? A demon might find it hard not to laugh, especially with all the hopeful students in the room thinking this is so cool a project to work on. After all, these students grew up consuming the predictive programming of Hollywood science fiction, so of course this is the kind of place they aspire to work. There is so much going on in the world that we don't know about, much of which has a real potential to create an almost literal hell on Earth. Maybe you don't care too much about yourself in this slow-motion train wreck of a culture. Maybe you figure you'll just die and go be with Christ, and, you know, frankly, that's great. But what about your children or your grandchildren? Is that going to be their choice? What about your spouse, your parents, or your neighbors? Do they matter? Or is Christianity just about us personally? Jesus called us into his kingdom for a time like this. We have a job to do to warn others of what's coming. We are furthermore to help them understand the implications of the complex things that are going on so that they don't make decisions that will have an eternally deleterious consequence for their existence. To do that, we must know what's going on, who's doing what, and what it means when they do certain things, and then we have to find a way to convey this important information to others. I have a secret to tell you that I got right out of Revelation. There are going to be a lot of people killed in the lead-up to the Great Tribulation, and even more in the Great Tribulation. So if you're thinking that you can just die and go be with Jesus, hey, you might very well get your wish. But until God decides to let that happen, if you are a Christian, you have a personal duty to help as many of your friends, family, and neighbors as you can avoid making a decision that could lead irrevocably to their eternal condemnation. But we haven't even gotten to that point in this story yet. We have more groundwork to lay first, but so little time to lay it. Let's hope I'm wrong, but in case I'm not, please join with me and become one of those despised and hated watchmen on the wall who try, often in vain, to warn others of the approaching tsunami of hell. Because in Ezekiel 33 verses 1 to 11, God commanded us to warn others if we have knowledge of an approaching sword. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land, and the people of the land choose one of their men, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning, and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak, and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? You have been recruited by God as a loyal listener of this podcast. God does not want anyone to die eternally, which is why he sends warnings and recruits people to shout the warnings. But God will condemn those who act wickedly without repentance, whether they act wickedly as an active participant or wickedly as a passive bystander. 
Be kind, patient, brave, and consistent in your testimony to others, and if catastrophe finds us, let it find us doing the hard work of Christ. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face or whatever your app has to encourage others to listen. Hey, even bribe them. Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, your ears tuned, and your feet moving to do the work of God. And if you hear the long version of this, it's just sometimes I like to play the long version of the closing thing, and then you get to hear the long version, but, you, you know, there's nothing after this. All right. See you next week.